But you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, and sound in faith, love, and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husbands, so that God's word will not be slandered. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach, so that any opponent will be ashamed, because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Slaves are, sub are to submit to their masters in everything, and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness, so that they may adorn the teaching of God, our Saviour, in everything. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. <laughs> oh, there we go. There we go. All right. Well, self-help spouts quotes like, be the change you wish to see in the world, good things come to those who wait, or the super classic, live, laugh, love. Now, people go after these things mostly because there is a good life that they're trying to attain, whether that is achieving their perfect image, buying their dream home, starting up a successful business, having the perfect family, bringing positivity into their mindset. These self-help books target quite a universal desire in each one of us to grow, to be a better version of ourselves. And a lot of the skepticism that people have towards this movement is that the price to achieve this growth is too steep for a result that you might not always get that it often leads to burnout, broken relationships, selfishness, greed, and envy. But this good life is such a desirable dream, is it not? 
for everything to be in perfect balance, to have all that we want and need. Culture runs off selling this good life to us in ads and movies, always showing us the life that we could have. We even compare ourselves with those around us in our community. I'm sure I'm not the only one who desires a good life, even if what we think that looks like differs from person to person. So why does it feel like we sometimes have to sell ourselves to attain even a piece of this good life? Is the life we're reaching for going to just disappoint us in the end? Or is there a true good life that we can experience even now that will positively impact us and those around us? Well, if you haven't met me before, my name is Jared. I'm a student minister here, and in this chapter of Titus, we get a picture of this godly household. The polar opposite to what we've heard about so far in chapter 1. And Paul instructs Titus to proclaim this good life to the believers in Crete, so that their lives would, uh, would bring this compelling gospel to a greedy and lying culture. And as we explore this chapter in Titus, I hope we can see that the ways that we are to live and relate to one another should compel those around us that the true good life is found in the light of God's grace. And we're going to do that in three parts, and I'm quite proud of this one, these titles. You'll like them, ready? They are the good, the genuine, and the gospel. Right? Why don't I pray for us before we start digging in? Heavenly Father, this world tempts us in every way that the good life is found in the things we don't yet have. And too often we are left disappointed and broken. Please speak through me to grow our fellowship together as we are reminded by your grace to us and strengthened in our relationship with you. Amen. So, let's start with the good. Now, what you've heard from Mike and Carl is that Paul is writing to Titus in Crete about straightening things out there and appointing elders. He describes the quality an elders of the church should and shouldn't have, and in doing so, we're given insight into what the people of Crete are like. The final verse of chapter 1 says that those who are unbelieving claim to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. And then we enter into this chapter with a but. But you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. And this sets up the contrast with the Cretan households. Paul's goal in this chapter is to instruct Titus on the ways that they are to live in society and among one another. That is to be consistent with the healthy teaching of the gospel to promote spiritual growth. In this, Paul addresses five groups of people, older men, older women, 
younger women, young men, and slaves. And he does this because I think he rightly determines that there, for each stage of life that people find themselves in, they'll each come across different challenges and temptations. So Paul says that older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves in excessive drinking. Now, I don't think Paul is distinguishing here that only the older women are capable of enslaving themselves to alcohol. But this was most likely speaking towards the temptation that the older women were facing during that time in Crete. Because if you look at the commands given to older men and women, you can just as easily apply it to both of them. And it would be a good thing. But Paul also connects the elder with the younger in these scenarios. As he speaks about older women, he says they are to teach what is good so that they may encourage young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husbands. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. The particular thing I want to note here is the way Paul sets up the dynamic of discipleship in these verses. For both men and women, he encourages the older to teach the younger. And in fact, to make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. When we think about wisdom and teaching in these stages of life, I think a really beautiful dynamic begins to show where everyone is empowered to disciple and be discipled by fellow brothers and sisters as iron sharpens iron. Paul outlines that there are people around us who have lived more of life or are further along in their career paths than others and are capable of speaking of the challenges, the temptations, and the joys of being a Christian in those spaces. I imagine the mum of a three-year-old helping a new mum find time to spend with God. A young worker helping someone who's just out of university and looking for work stay strong in their faith during a change of life stages. Or someone who's doing a lot better in their mental health, supporting someone who is struggling. Now, this isn't a rhetorical question. Do we have tabs on who is the, like, the youngest person at TAC? Most freshly born. Do we know? Any ideas? Whoever they are. There's, there's someone. There's got to be someone. But who? Theo? How old are you? And he is. A couple of months. There you go. Well, I, I'm going to say... I think Theo is the only one with an excuse not to disciple someone. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from him, 
everyone here has someone older who can disciple them and someone younger who they can disciple. Can you see someone in this room or someone you know in this church who is at a stage of life you remember going through and who you can share with them what has helped you in godliness? Now, the last group Paul mentions is slaves, where he says, slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness. What I don't hear this saying is that an employee should submit to their employer in everything. The dynamic between slaves and masters were too different to modern-day work conditions today. But we know that because of the gospel, that Christian slaves were in a very unique position back then, where they were treated with respect. And so Paul's intention is not to be pro-slavery, especially considering he calls himself a slave to Christ in the opening words of this very letter. Rather, Paul's intention is to encourage slaves, like all people in their stages of life, to live together in a way that, as verse 10 puts it, adorns the teaching of God our Savior in everything. As Paul speaks through these things, he's painting this picture of this beautiful gospel household where every member is loved, cared for, and respected, where no one in the family is ashamed of the actions of their brother or sister but rather delights in sharing and teaching life with them. This is a good life lived in community. It works counterculturally to what is happening in Crete and happening today with the individualism movement, but in a way that, as verse 8 puts it, any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. And at times, we have truly felt the benefits of what this looks like at TAC. And no doubt, the community around us has felt that too. So as someone who is older than someone else in this room or in this church, how might you set an example and teach the gospel to the younger brother or sister? Now, while I say this, We're probably aware that this isn't always the case at TAC, nor is this good life in community always the case in any church, let alone Titus's church. After all, Paul has encouraged Titus to straighten things out there, meaning that this beautiful picture that Paul is pointing to isn't the current picture of the church in Crete. That's why I've titled this section, The Genuine. And I want us to pause on this important contextual point as we explore what good life Paul is alluding to. Growing up, I thought I had the perfect family. Having two brothers and three sisters, I called our family the Brady Bunch. But I genuinely believed we were like a sitcom family. We may bicker and have some tension but it all gets resolved at the end of every episode. But that dream fell away quite quickly. I want you to picture this. Six kids 
within a nine-year period, when I entered into my teenage years, I had four older teenage siblings and a young adult older sister all under the one roof. Those arguments were like a war zone every time. Whenever we had a family event or a special day, mum would start the day with, can we please not have an argument today? <laughs> I think we all know what happened. <laughs> you see, I often see Christians respond to sin in a similar way to my mum. Can you just not? Use self-control. Just stop it. I mean, even in the first 10 verses of this chapter, we hear of three groups of people encouraged to have self-control. And looking to those verses, we can see this ideal good life. But actually, living it out can be one of the hardest things. And it can feel even more problematic when the church tells you to just say no to sin. I imagine it like a car's brake system. When you're about to slam into the car in front of you, throwing your full weight on the brake can save you that day. But what if it happens again and again? Eventually, just slamming the brakes wouldn't work because they'll snap. When you are struggling with sin, and it takes you away from this ideal picture that we see in verses 1 to 10, if your solution is just to reiterate those commands or to just try harder, you'll be crushed. Paul says in Romans 7, for I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. We are constantly torn between what we know to be good and the harm that we do. So if we have this picture of the good life, but in reality, we fail to achieve this every day, what is our solution? What is it that can drive us? From verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are two senses of appearing in these verses. The appearing of grace in verse 11, and the appearing of glory in verse 13. And Paul places us squarely in the middle. That the grace of God has appeared and the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will appear. 
It is the grace and the glory of God that acts as our engine and drives our efforts for this good life. Because verse 14 says, He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. It's when we look at Christ, the grace he showed to us while we were far away, that we grow in us the desire to do good. It is through this grace that we are able to turn from those momentary pleasures because we are able to see the coming glory. It births a hope within us that while our physical bodies decay and life's problems get in the way, we can lift our eyes to this glorious future that we're already experiencing today. If you want to know what this good life looks like amongst one another, we can look to verses 1 to 10. But if you actually want people to live it out, it's not through telling them the good that they must do for God, but to look to the good that God has done for them. It's this grace which is our teacher, our desire and our driver. The grace of God teaches us to desire to control ourselves and our passions, while also giving us the freedom to not always be perfect at it. Any Christian will tell you that we won't experience the fullness of this perfect life today. And while the grace of God spurs us to love and good deeds, we aren't always loving And we aren't always doing good. But by that same grace, we are being renewed each and every day, spurred on to love and do good as we move ever closer to the appearing of the glory of God. When we no longer have to strive for this perfect life, but will be in the midst of it. You'll often hear about this continual growing towards our perfect selves be described as sanctification. And C.S. Lewis describes it like this. God sees before him a self-centered, greedy, grumbling, rebellious human animal. But he says, let us pretend that this is not a mere creature, but our son. God looks at you as if you were a little Christ. Christ stands beside you to turn you into one. I dare say this idea of a divine make-believe sounds rather strange at first, but is it so strange really? Is that not how the higher thing always raises the lower? A mother teaches a baby to talk by talking to it as if it understood long before it really does. So if we are to be this sanctified household living in the light of God's grace, what does that mean for us today? I think this passage encourages us towards two things. Firstly, this transformed home 
starts here in this family of God that we've been saved into. So I would urge you to disciple and be discipled by one another. Your journeys of faith are encouraging and challenging to one another. God has granted each of us a wisdom that will benefit this family as a whole. Look to the examples of verses 1 to 10 of men and women, young and old, all ministering to one another. Through God, we discover the true good life in his transformed household. A life defined by grace, love, and truth. We become a part of a community that sharpens us and supports one another through life's greatest joys and its deepest challenges. Because it is in God alone that we find genuine fulfillment and through his love for us, he has given us a community where we can love God together in. Who are you discipling and being discipled by? Secondly, in a world that constantly tempts us with the allure of instant gratification, where success, wealth, and worldly pleasures are marketed as the keys to the good life, we ought to readily turn to the grace that God has shown us. We, we face this, these kinds of temptations daily to chase after that dream home that perfect career, or that ideal image. Pursuing these immediate pleasures may bring temporary satisfaction, but it often leaves us spiritually dead, weary, and unfulfilled. Like trying to quench our thirst with salt water. It may seem refreshing at first, but it ultimately leads us thirstier than before. Turning to God and His grace shown towards us may not always offer that instant gratification, requiring instead patience, self-control, and perseverance. Yet in that choice, we find a wellspring of joy that never runs dry. A family founded on unconditional love and a good life that transcends the passing pleasures of this world. In a world that runs on these momentary pleasures, this gospel message is countercultural. Finding your joy in God rather than in your possessions or your achievements. Finding your comfort in his peace rather than the thing that you reach for out of habit to bring you comfort. Finding your unconditional love in the God who sent his son to die for you and give you his eternal spirit rather than the people and objects who are finite in the love that they can offer you. This good Countercultural message of life is one that we're encouraged in verse 15 to proclaim these things 
encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So, what temptations are in your life at the moment? How are you being compellingly countercultural in your home or your work to bring the gospel to those who don't know? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us this amazing life of grace that grows us more into the image of your Son every day. Help us to see this good life that we have been saved into as we continue to look at your word and as we continue to be in community with each other. Through this transforming gospel, may our household be transformed in a way that spurs and disciples one another and challenges our culture in the most loving way. We ask this in your great name. Amen.